1: I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker,
0: and I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neo Modern, and grumpy old man. And we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Reuben. How are you today?
1: I'm good. Happy Fleet Week.
0: It is. Uh, I hope our show is not too uh, insane with the Blue Angels flying overhead. Constantly,
1: <laughs> well, but... I mean, it's a little bit of you know background, like a bit of a crescendo. Maybe we can just time it up with our conversation so that it's uh, it amplifies what we're saying.
0: Yeah, if we do hear it, we may pause sometimes.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't even know. I mean, we'll just, I think we just roll with it.
0: Okay. Um, and I wanted to introduce you to our guest today, um, an old friend of mine, Rick Smolin. Rick, this is Suzanne. Hi, Rick. Hello, Suzanne. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm very well. It is an absolute pleasure to meet the legend.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, I want to, for our guest... In, in his own mind. Yeah. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: for, now, hopefully this will not embarrass you, but I want to give a little bit of background to our listeners um, who may not all be professional photographers, so they're not as wowed as uh, as we are here to have you with us. But um, uh, everyone, this is Rick, Rick Smolin. Uh, I have a lot to say about his background. <clears throat> As soon as the jets are done flying over, Rick, oh, uh, uh, <laughs> it's like it's like lightning bolts That's are going to happen. I know.
1: mean, it, it's <laughs> Zeusical. <laughs> All
0: right. Um, so Rick Smolin is with us today. Uh, he's a uh, you know he was a Time magazine photographer, a Life magazine photographer, a National Geographic photographer, among many other publications. I think I first um, became aware of Rick. Um, when I was younger he had done this amazing uh, trek across Australia in the late 70s um, following a woman Robin Davidson on her um, journey through the deserts of Australia uh, and the, and I guess you, you made a book out from Alice to Ocean was that
2: um... yeah back in, in 91 we did a book together so she it was a text from her book Tracks which has sold uh, 1.4 million copies in 18 languages wow mm-hmm. and then more recently uh the guys that did the king's speech the producers the oscar-winning producers of the king's speech actually took her story and turned it into a feature film which is really exciting
0: that's right and i was wondering i mean maybe i can ask you what it's like to have adam driver play you in a movie (laughs) and not be like a super villain like he was playing well it's actually
2: it was actually before he was in star wars oh (laughs) and uh he was really sweet almost shy um, and they actually flew me and Robin, the girl who did this amazing adventure, back to be on set to watch them playing us. Which is, you—you just—it it's like you've died wow. and you're watching your life from 30,000 feet. It was so weird. That is what so, was it, it,
0: like,
1: just surreal? And
0: they're acting out things you're like, oh, that's not how <laughs> I did that. Or do you give them a full <laughs> creative license? Or is it kind of, yeah, it's like out of body, right?
2: Well, you know... Uh, I always thought if I ever wrote a book about being a photographer, I would call it, I love being a photographer. I just don't like being treated like one <laughs> because
1: <laughs> great title, because
2: I mean, I love being a photographer. I always did. But you know, I think there, especially in Hollywood, there's this cliche of the parasitic photographer feeding off of other people's experiences. And that's not what journalism is at all. That's paparazzi shit, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, when they were making this movie, they asked me if I would consult if they use my pictures to build the sets. I said fine. I said I just only want one thing. I want to ask one favor in return, which is that, you know, every time you see a photographer in a Hollywood movie, they're always a parasite, mm-hmm. and that was not that wasn't my you know role in this journey of you know documenting Robin. So I said, could we could you please not do that? They said no, of course not. Your character is so important in the film. Blah blah blah. The usual bullshit, and then. When, the, when they finished the movie, they said we want to screen it for you by yourself in a theater, got a little screening room. And uh, um, I said, great. So I, they flew me to L.A. and I go in this little room with you know like I had forty seats in it, and the movie starts. And the Rick in the movie is a complete parasite, right? I mean, oh. he's stag, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have gotten funding from the Geographic. You know, <laughs> I'm this. And I said, Jesus Christ, I wrote. I, I mean, by the end of the movie, I sort of redeemed myself, but I was so pissed. At how I was portrayed, and I called them. I said, "Guys, like it's the one thing I, you promised you weren't going to do." And they said, "Yeah, we know, but you know with the arc of the character—you had to start as an asshole, and then by the end of the movie, everyone loves the Adam Driver, Rick Smolin character." And then I saw it in a movie theater at the Tribeca Film Festival with a whole you know audience, and they were right. I mean, you know, basically you had to make the guy a jerk, yeah, and make him. It- you know, change. Otherwise, it's kind of, if, if you're just a nice guy throughout the whole thing, it's not very interesting. So anyway, I, I now love the film. And uh <laughs> highly, all Tracks. And Mia Wasikowska is really the star of the movie. She's, the, she was in um, Alice in Wonderland with Johnny yeah. Depp. Uh. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful actress. And she and Robin actually be, became really close friends. They talk every week and oh, so um, cool. they really bonded and, and it was amazing how much Mia looked like Robin. Anyway, I've gone off on a tangent here. No, no, no. It it's was. A, it's, unusual. Like, what a
0: strange experience to have. I mean, really for almost anybody it's got to be the strangest experience to see your life portrayed acted out by people during your lifetime to watch people acting out your experiences.
1: Yeah, well, and I'm wondering too, yeah, like, very, is there anything um, you know how, like, um, actors yeah, study man- mannerisms and things like that? Is there anything that you do when you take photographs, uh, body positions or, you know, movements that you notice that Adam picked up?
2: Yeah, you know, it, it was funny because, um, first of all, he wanted to spend a day together in New York, which we did, which is fun. And he said, I've never held a, a DSLR. I, I shoot with my iPhone like everybody else in my generation. And <laughs> I don't want to, you, know, you know, could somebody, like, spend some time with me? And I was actually in the middle of a project at the time. So David Burnett and Josh Hainer, Josh won the Pulitzer Prize. Mm-hmm. And, you, know, you know, David Burnett's an incredible photographer. So both of them spent some time with Adam. But he had never changed a role of film. And, um, and he, he, in the film, he does great. I mean, they, he really got the nuances of it. But um, at one point, I went into the trailer. Uh, this is on the set in the Outback at Ayers Rock in the middle of the desert in Australia. And they, they asked me if I wanted to be in the movie. And I said, Well, doing what? And they said, oh, We're, we're going to make you a park ranger. It's not a speaking role. You're going to be on the screen for like one millisecond. And I said, well, It's sort of like the Alfred Hitchcock, you know, who he yeah, yeah. sort of appears in his movies. So I said, That would oh, be so cool. So they put me in the makeup trailer, and Mia is sitting next to me, you know, having her makeup put on, and they're putting, they're making me look like I'm a tan, leathery guy from the outback. And um, I walk, I sit down at this chair, and all over the mirror are pictures of me from college, from high school, oh you know, as a photographer. It was a little weird. I said, well, "Where did you get these pictures?" And they said, "Oh, your niece has them on her Facebook page." And I said, "And you put them up because I was coming in today?" And they said, "No, no, no. Adam asked if." if we could put pictures of you, because you want to see how you hold your mouth, the yeah. expressions on your face. It was amazing. These actors, you know, the really good actors, are so obsessive about what they do. Like, yeah. who who would know it, that I don't hold my mouth like that? I mean, really? Right. And they they try to make him, they put a beard on him. He says he can't grow facial hair, and they had to glue the beard on. <laughs> um, uh, it, and it was just really, again, it was just really fun to watch him, sort of. But my objection is, like at one point he's saying to, to Robin slash Mia, you know, put your head back, can you turn sideways, give me a look, and it's like, I'm not a fashion photographer, I never did that. Uh-huh. Right. And it was, it, again, it was sort of making him sort of this creepy and manipulative guy at the beginning, and then he falls in love with Robin, as I did, yeah. um, in the real trip, and she wants to be alone. I mean, the last thing that she wanted is some lovesick National Geographic <laughs> photographer. The whole point <laughs> of her trip was to be out there, alone. She didn't want to go with her friends, but in a moment of weakness, she wrote to the Geographic asking if they would fund her trip, and I—I I was the pound of flesh. They sent me out there, <laughs> and I—I had never met a woman like this before. She was not just beautiful, but so, just so different than any any human being I'd ever met. Just absolutely fascinating, and crazy, and fascinating, and thought-provoking. Anyway, so they—they—they they, they downplayed the romance in the movie, which I'm actually happy about, uh, but. Um, It's really a one-woman movie. I mean, Adam's in there periodically, but the whole movie is really Mia, and and she's extraordinary.
1: Is there anything, is there, like, a particular image that you took of Robin that you feel is sort of the, like, the quintessential image of her going Uh, across the outback on that trip? And could you describe it visually? Yeah,
2: I mean, you know, what's interesting, what was so unique about working for The Geographic is that um, I spent probably three months traveling with Robin out for nine months. I was supposed to just go out a few times, but then I just kept staying longer and longer. So first of all, um, when you graphic, then when you were shooting, you, could, you were never allowed to develop your own film. You had to, you had to send everything undeveloped back to New York. Oh, and um, I didn't, you know, the trouble is then you see your film nine months later and you don't learn anything that way. So I broke all the rules. I would go back to Melbourne or Sydney and I was shooting Kodachrome, so I would go to the local Kodak lab and develop it, and then I would only show them what I wanted them to see, and they were so angry at me, they would like, "You'll never work for us again. you broke your contract. they were, and I you know I didn't care because i i you know I was a little you know I was twenty seven years old and I was kind of a little cocky <laughs> and um uh, but the, what was great about it is I could see my pictures and say, okay, I don't have enough of this. I have enough of that. I don't need any okay. more huge wide landscapes. I need more pictures of her asleep in the morning in her sleeping bag or nuzzling the, the camels or her relationship with her dog. Um, I shot 150,000 pictures during your trip and they used wow. 30 pictures in the, in the magazine, which is like, I think, almost an all-time record for a story. But for me, it barely scratched the surface. Right. So <clears throat> to answer your question about if there's one picture that captured the trip. There were just so many. Um, There was one picture that had had, had a special affinity towards, and it wasn't even, Robin was not even in the picture. We were on on an airport, sort of a dusty dirt landing strip outside of an Aboriginal school, and they were bringing some supplies to Robin. We were waiting for the plane to land, and the plane was going to be there for two hours, so we were early. And there were a bunch of Aboriginal kids playing with a balloon. And I had two cameras. I had Kodachrome in one, which is like ASA 25, or think uh-huh. of ISO 25. Uh-huh. And the other camera had triax in it. And without knowing, I, I had black actually and white. I, I had actually put yeah, sorry black and white. So yeah. I had put black and white film in the color camera, and so it was four stops or seven stops underexposed. Uh-huh. So I took this picture. The kids, the kids were playing with this balloon, and they jumped. And the picture, when I shot the picture, I thought, this is the best photograph I've ever shot in my life. Oh, wow. And then I looked down at my camera and realized that it was like six or seven stops underexposed, which okay. meant it was so dark, and, when, and of course, when I saw the picture developed, you, you know, nine months later, it was dark and dingy, and I could kind of vaguely make out what, what I knew had been an extraordinary picture, but that I had ruined. This is 1977, uh-huh. 76, 77, 77. And um, I was so upset, and I love the picture so much, I stuck it in my safe deposit box. And when (gasps) Russell Brown and uh, Photoshop uh, came out, I went to Russell, and Russell, bless his heart, helped me restore that photograph to what it looked like when I shot it. And it's a double-page spread in the book, and it's (gasps) it's just my favorite picture, I think, that I've ever shot. Um, (laughs) And I I just can't believe, at 27 years old, I had the wherewithal to think, someday, somebody will have some technology that lets me <laughs> save this picture <laughs> yeah so it had nothing it Robin's inside of the picture it, it is in the book um, uh, it, it was not in the National Geographic feature because back then we couldn't rescue it so anyway.
1: I love so, that story I mean, for so many reasons. We've asked people before, like how does t- uh, like how does time change a photograph? Uh-huh. You know, in your mind, and this is like the best example I've ever heard.
0: Well, but waiting. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty funny to wait for the technology to get invented to fix some problem, right? You, well, you know, I'm re- I mean, it's completely. I'll end up probably cutting this, but um, when I joined the company Sonic Solutions, we, we were like, we, we spun out of Lucasfilm, and we were the first people to pre-master stuff for cds and a guy showed up who had recorded the doors at the hollywood bowl a bruce botnick he had been the the engineer and and they had done had this great famous concert in 1968 but jim morrison's mic cable was loose so all through the audio track, it's got pops and it's just explosions. Oh. You know, it's like when a loose mic cable. And every year since '68, he's waited. They've tried editing it. They've done whatever. <laughs> and this was 1987, and he's like, he's just been carrying this tape around the world for decades, <laughs> hoping someone could some way fix it. And we fixed it.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> it
0: was amazing. And the That's film so released cool. soon after. It's the same situation, yeah. man. It's like, thing, you, know, like you know, you
2: know. But Michael, Michael, this would be a really interesting uh, piece for a magazine of. Like, your example, my example, I bet there's a hundred others of people that did something and they said, someday we'll be able to fix this. And they, like, today I saw um, this little animation where they've got the mo- – they, they can take still photographs and make the people like Einstein the Mona Lisa talk I mean, uh-huh. and, and, like, bring still pictures to life. It's really – it's creepy. and It's, cre- yeah. it's creepy good. <laughs> it's what's good it until now- it's used in politics or something. What's it called now? Deep, deep, deep. – well, deep fakes, yeah, deep exactly. Fake. It's I a deep mean, fake, If you, yeah. you can take the Mona Lisa and bring her alive, imagine what you can do with, with making Obama say something he never said or blah, oh, blah, yeah. blah. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for Trump now to do that, uh, of, of course. Of course.
0: Yeah. And of, and realize this is not a, a huge difference from those people who have, you know, Walt Disney or whoever, who have frozen themselves hoping that someday in the future the technology exists <laughs> to cure them of whatever well, well, killed yeah,
2: them. That's right. that's right. Yeah. That's right. They froze their head. We, we actually did a book once called The Power to Heal, and we had a picture of a guy who um, – was going to have his head cut off and frozen thinking they could reset because they had to deep freeze it instantly right after he died.
1: Yeah, wow. Um,
2: it was really it was really bizarre that he's holding up this animation of how they got to saw off his head. Oh and stuff. my yeah. god.
1: I do remember there was something in um <laughs> well, He was
2: dead already at that point, so I guess it differed. <laughs> still, it's, it's still, still so funny. gruesome. There, there
1: was something in like the 90s on like uh, probably like 60 minutes or something where people they were talking about this scam where people would freeze their bodies and then they went and investigated these businesses that were like having storage units but they weren't really super cold they were just, <laughs> just they like a refrigerator. just like freezer deep <laughs> freezer and they're like this will never work
0: oh i had it i mean there's my mind I, I don't even know if i finished introducing you um i have two things to two buns to pick with you uh rick i It was you who I I had been on film for, you know, obviously my whole life until I decided it was time to get a digital camera, and I ran into you. I guess we were at TED or EG or somewhere.
2: EG, yeah, one of those.
0: And you were walking around, and I said, "What are you? What are you using?" And you held up your Fuji, and I and I was, and you said you liked it, and I looked at it and. I went and got it, and I'm a big fan. I use Fuji, and I came back and I showed you one day, and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm a, a Leica man. Sony, no, no, <laughs> I'm no, Sony. Now, I'm Sony. now you're a Sony, Sony
2: guy. <laughs> yeah, the, RX, the RX1 is like my favorite little walk around shoot camera. It's like, it doesn't look like a professional camera, but you can shoot, it's just extraordinary. It's the RX1 Model 3, the little tiny, it's like a $4,000 Sony point and shoot. It doesn't have a zoom. You can't take the lens off. Oh. It's not that easy to use, but it's just when it, the pictures it takes are like Leica pictures. I mean, it, wow. it's amazing to me what you can do with it, and, and you can shoot in no no light at all, and and the pictures come out. In fact, my wife, my wife Jennifer, always complains that it actually looks too bright in places that were not bright. You know, it's like wow, you have to <laughs> dial it
0: down. That's pretty. That's pretty impressive.
2: I will also say, by the
0: way, it, it is worth mentioning. Jennifer um, is super awesome, but. Jennifer's father is Elliot Erwitt, who oh, is of Wait, course my up. favorite photographer. And um, I used to joke that the pictures in my home were always of <clears throat> vacations and families and dogs and all this stuff, but they were not my vacations, not my family. It was <laughs> your, it was her family, it was her <laughs> vacations. My father-in-law. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, no, anyway, my, I was my dad that. gave me my dad gave me a book of Elliot's when I was sixteen, and I just said I want to be a photographer. I didn't even know what that meant. I just looked at his pictures, and they just they spoke to me in a way I'd never, they are witty and funny and subtle, they are like New Yorker cartoons, they had this funny, they weren't making fun of people, but they had this wry way, I mean, think of his name being Erwitt. I mean, they were very witty pictures, you know, it's (laughs) like when Dr. Blood, you know, it's just, just, it's just, his his pictures are in every museum in the world, he's very, uh, he doesn't say very much, he's, but when he does speak, he's usually pretty funny. He uh, yeah, has such a unique way of looking at the world. Anyway, if your what, listeners what, are not aware of Elliot Erwitt's pictures, you can just Google it. You won't believe the pictures. I
0: show his work every day in, at Neo Modern. It's just important to me to people keep familiar with his his photography. I just think it's it, it was always inspirational to me. I, I got to ask though. I never even asked you this. So you were you obviously grew up as a photographer. You're a National Geographic photographer. You knew who he was. When you met her, was it there a moment of like that starstruckness? Like, oh my God, this is Elliot no, no, daughter. No, I met her.
2: No, I kept trying to meet him. Like when I was uh, twenty-four, out of college, I took my my yearbook. Twenty-two out of whatever it was into New York, I finally got a meeting with him and he went through my, you know, yearbook and through my little box of Kodak prints. And you know, it took me like six months to get a meeting in Magnum with the great Elliot Erwitt and he just like he would just turn the prints and say nothing and say nothing and then he didn't know this is amusing and then <laughs> look at four more pictures and hmm, interesting. And then thank you for coming. That was there he said like two sentences and then he was the first photographer i invited to work on the first day in the life book i spent I, stayed, I knew he was coming to melbourne on a, a speaking thing so i was i was just starting to work on inviting photographers to come to australia for the first day in the life book and so i wrote the whole letter to every other photographer it was based on my letter to him and i went that night to hear him speak and i handed the letter to him and never heard a word back he didn't he did not work on their project and so when the book came out yeah, there was an exhibit in New York City by Hiroji Kubota, the great Japanese photographer, and I went to Hiroji's exhibit, and there was Elliot, and I walked up now for the third time in my life saying, you probably don't remember me, which was an understatement, <laughs> and uh, and then while I was trying to make small conversation with him, which is impossible, you can't make small talk with Elliot, Jennifer walked up, 23 years old, just drop dead, gorgeous, <laughs> no makeup, just like, you know, sort of Raphael-esque beauty and i told my best friend i met the woman I'm gonna marry tonight and nobody had ever heard me say those words before wow, wow. Um, and uh, it took seven years to talk her into it yeah. but uh now now we have two kids and we do projects together and uh one of the you know when you look back on your life you think that one moment changed the trajectory of your whole life
1: yeah. That's and whether it was the
2: giving the, the book for my dad or meeting jennifer both of those things you know sort of wove together
1: did um is she also a photographer is she also a photographer
2: uh she's actually got a really good eye, but she kind of herds the cats uh you know she does the budget's the spreadsheets. she's the organizational queen uh, uh and uh, you know being you know so much of being a photographer is like you know sort of bullshitting your way past the garden to the palace right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and uh jennifer uh her, her skill set is not bullshitting people it's more taking chaos and creating order out of it. So we have a great working relationship. She does all the work and I take all the credit. So it's, like, it's absolutely perfect. <laughs> it's, it sounds
0: like marriage to me.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, I, I was going
0: to ask you to describe a little bit about the Day in the Life series because that's when uh, I hadn't heard from you in a while in the past. And then all of a sudden you showed back up on the radar with these books and they're a totally fascinating idea. Can you explain how that came about and what you were doing?
2: Sure. So, um, you know, I was incredibly lucky uh, from a very, I never studied photography and at the beginning I thought I was an imposter. I thought everybody else had gone to photography school or whatever one did and I was afraid to tell people I actually just did the yearbook in college and high school and I was like winging it. Um, And so when I got hired by uh, Time Magazine, they sent me to Asia and uh, I was always 10 years younger than everybody else so every time I wanted to hang out with Philip Jones Griffiths or J.P. Lafont or, or any of my heroes, Um, They all wanted to hang out in bars. I'm not a big drinker, but if I wanted to be with my heroes, I I would end up in a bar with them. So one night in Bangkok, I was sitting next to Philip Jones Griffiths and J.P. Lafon and David Burnett, a bunch of other friends, and they were all bitching and moaning about their damn editors and their stupid magazines, and I said, guys, like, this is the coolest job in the world. Someone's paying us like $400 a day and we're renting Learjets and meeting presidents and prime ministers and getting shot at. I mean, this is so cool. And they're all saying, you know, I was 28 years old. at that. Actually, that was, yeah, I was was 28. That was a year after after, uh, Robin's camel trip. And uh, they all said, well, kid, you know, once you've been out here a while, you'll know why we're so bitter and twisted. And I said, why are you bitter and twisted? And they said, we want our pictures to change the world. We don't want to just like, be filler for ads and like like how they said to me how often have you shot a story for a magazine and when you pick up the magazine they, they use the connect the dot photographs the ones they expected to see before you went out if you show them something different they don't want to hear from you it's like they get the story wrong they're back in london or paris or new york city and and they send you out there but you're the one that's on the spot but they don't even you know so i said well guys why don't we like why don't we all do a project together with no editors and no magazines what if like <laughs> What if, like, what if we got people from 30 countries, like all, all you guys, all my heroes and some of my peers and some young photographers, and we all, I was living in Australia at the time, I was still there after Robin's trip, and uh, I said, you know, we could like spread out around the country and say, on your mark, and said, go, 24 hours, it would be like the Olympics of photography, and all these older, wiser, drunken friends sort of patted me on the head and said, yeah, kid, you go organize it, we'll all come. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little obsessive, so I actually went and met with 35 publishers, and they all said, what a stupid idea, who on earth, it would cost a million dollars for a bunch of your friends to take pictures of some godforsaken country on the other side of the world, who would would care about something like that? And they said, do it in black and white, do it the magazine size, you know, this is way before the internet, right? So I went, so I got turned down by every publisher, so I went to the Prime Minister of Australia, who I'd photographed a bunch of times, and and he was one of the few politicians that liked photographers and uh so I, I got a meeting with him i said look i want to bring the best photographers in the world to your country could you give me the money to do it it'll be really good for australia And he said yeah let's try he said uh, I, you know i got i could bring three photographers to australia i can't i don't have any kind of budget to bring 100 he said but i'll help you and i said you know don't be polite he said no no i'm going to help you but you're going to have to do the heavy lifting here i said I, i'm not following you he said look i'm going to set up meetings for you with the ceo of Qantas CEO of Kodak Australia, this guy, Steve Jobs, starting this computer company back in the <laughs> States. And I said, why would I want to talk to some computer guy? He said, Rick, Rick, stick with me here. You're going to ask, free hotel rooms, free film, free computers, free uh, uh, you know rental cars. And I said, and they're just going to give me this stuff. Why? He said, because you're going to put their logo in the first page of your book. I said, I can't do that. I'm a journalist. That would be selling out. He said, Rick, 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 this is like a PBS special. The following book is made... Made possible through the generosity of the following corporations. So Love I went it. out there, and to my it, it never occurred to me if the prime minister set up a meeting for you, people would be kind of inclined to listen. Yeah. I had hair down on my shoulders. I was this, you know, hippie kid, right? And uh, so Qantas gave us 100 first class round trip tickets to Australia. Wow. Kodak gave us 3,000 rolls of film. Steve gave us computers. I had no cash at all. And so everybody. My, everybody in my office slept on the floor in sleeping bags for six months organizing it. We found families all over Australia for the photographers. I said to the photographers, I can get you here. I can get you a car. I can get you a film. I have no money to pay you. I, there's no day rate. If we ever make money, I'll, I'll, I'll give a third of any money we ever make to all the photographers. And we actually did send a $1,000 a photo- $1, to every photographer years later, like three years later. Wow. And so we did this book with no, with no publisher. And it became the number one book in Australia. Um, and I thought I, going, I was gonna go back to being a photographer. And then the governor of Hawaii called and, and said, <laughs> we just saw your Australia book, w- w- would you do us? And then American Express called and said, would you do Japan, because we're fighting with uh, the JCB card. Um, then Gorbachev called, and I mean, it just went wow. great. And we started doing a book, and then a movie about the making of the book. So almost every single book had a one hour TV special together with it. Um, and every time we kept trying to add new technology to it. So we would, we, we would give um, cameras out to school kids in every country. Like every photographer could find two children and give uh, a camera, a disposable camera to the kids. And they'd mail that in, so that became part of it. Um, and then when uh, Apple, we actually started paying, Steve let us pay the photographers as the books went on. You could either get $1,000 or you get the latest Mac and printer and a ton of software. So wow. all the photographers took the $3,000 package <laughs> and, and so the very first Macintoshes at Time, Newsweek, National Geographic, the London Sunday Times, all came through the Day in the Life project. So we, we did wow. this back-end deal, which Apple loved because it became the standard in the journalism world. Yeah. just crazy. That is awesome.
1: I mean, talk about really a ripple fun. effect or like something that changes the trajectory of your, <laughs> trajectory of your life. I mean.
2: Yeah.
0: And and, and again, you were just having everyone shoot like one day
2: wherever they were. Yeah. yeah it's 24 hours we we had we spent months getting ready because you know if you let photographers do what they want they'll end up photographing the junkies under the bridge you know what I mean you know to show you know it, it, you know what I'm saying it's like everybody wants to go to the underbelly and like we're trying to do I'm not I wasn't trying to do a tourist book look at a country but I was trying to do like warts and all like we Eddie Adams did prostitutes right uh-huh. but we did school kids we, we were just trying to capture I didn't want any kangaroos I didn't want the opera House. I didn't want all the cliches. I was trying to show what a normal, typical day was like. Because if you think about it, what makes a great photographer a great photographer is not just not the subject matter. It's his or her approach to the subject matter, right? I mean, to me, if you want to see if somebody's a great photographer, send them to a shopping mall, yeah. which is inherently deadly. If they come back with a set of pictures that blow you away, that's a great photographer. That's a great
0: right? test, by the way. Yeah. That's a great test. <laughs> send everyone to a shopping mall and see what they come back with. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, in, uh, Salgado worked on our first book when he was just starting, James nice. Nockway, I mean, you know, Franz, Franz Lanting, doing mm-hmm. so many incredible photographers when they were just at the very beginning of their careers. You know, my biggest regret is I wish that I'd asked everybody for a print on every project. Like, the price of admission is like I'm working my ass off here to give everybody an amazing experience and I would love it if you would just give me, I mean, just think I would have Thousands of prints of the world's best photographers. But oh, I, I never yeah. thought about that at the time.
0: Yeah, you think you covered your bases pretty well, and thinking about all the various angles. But yeah, you missed one.
2: Clearly. Yeah, that would have been really good. I would have loved to have early Salgado, right? Oh yeah, and uh, Noctway and Burnett. All these, all my, everybody, like all my friends. But yeah, everybody. You just, just like looking at the pictures behind you on your wall. Like the photographs are like my friends too, right? You know. Yeah. Um, that's why I like. I love going to that APAD show in New York every year because it's uh-huh. like I see my. My human friends and I see my photographic friends on the walls.
0: It's funny. You do get a, I was sort of discussing this. I don't remember on one of our other shows, but um, the way that a picture is like a child, it's this creation, this thing you've made. And then someone adopts it, you know, and takes it home and then they take care of it. And you can relax because it's in good hands, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's kind of a cool it's feeling. It's funny. A friend a friend, a friend, friend of mine uh, was staying at Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively's apartment in New York recently. Uh-huh. And he told me that all over the walls they have Elliot Orbit pictures. Oh. And all the screensavers on all their computers are all Elliot Orbit pictures. And I thought, wow. Like, you know, Deadpool guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got impeccable and taste. Exactly. Yeah, they're both wonderful. I mean, just I love it. Love that, that that his pictures just resonate like that. You know? Do you
1: do you have a favorite huh. Elliot or
2: what picture of Elliot's? Yeah. Um, there's a bunch. There's 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 <laughs> there's a really wonderful one he shot in the nudist colony, and it's uh, a a woman with a birthmark on her butt and and a, and her and her child walking away, and behind her, closer to the camera, is uh, another guy uh, also naked from the back who has two tennis balls in his hand, and off to the right is another woman leaning over, and, the, the, and like, you know, Elliot's pictures are like Rorschach tests, so I always <laughs> say to people, tell me what you think this story is. <laughs> is that, <laughs> that's the, the, the woman with a birthmark on her butt, and the boy are his wife and son, but he's looking at the other girl who's leaning over and he's got two balls in his hand. Right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I also I love, love that it.
2: picture, by the way, I, I put it up here
0: periodically. I, I love that yeah, shot. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and of course his dog pictures, there's one of like, you know, uh, Like a Great Dane's legs and a woman with boots, and then a little Chihuahua. And in your mind, you kind of think mother, father, baby, and like, which makes no sense at all. (laughs) It's just, and he's actually shot the picture laying on the ground, which is also, you know, when when people, when young photographers say, you know, give me some tips, I always say, get high or get low, like you know, change the perspective. And the fact that Elliot laid on the ground to take these pictures. Is one of the things that makes the picture because you're kind of looking at it from a dog's perspective, mm-hmm. um, and and also I love the one of uh, Elliot's first wife Lucien, pregnant on the bed, and there's a cat, and I think maybe there's a, uh, Ellen, although oh, the baby, it's the baby, the cat, and uh, Lucienne. It's a black and white picture, and it's uh, it's Jennifer's older sister Ellen. It's just a wonderful
0: picture. they just she's just looking at her or something. She's just on the bed yeah, with her, right? Yeah, yeah I
2: love that. And the yeah. cat's yeah.
0: cat's kind of in silhouette. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, What kind of, I mean, that's interesting. What kind of tips do you give to beginners? Like when you first meet someone, I mean, it seems like we always tell people like change your point of view, get higher, get low, move around, change your. Yeah. What other kinds of things do you, when someone's starting out, would you sort of advise them?
2: Well, the first thing I say is don't sit around and wait for someone else to tell you what to photograph. Don't wait for an assignment. Like if you want to, I mean, if I was an editor at a magazine, I would want someone to walk in and say, you know, I am totally passionate about, um, you know, X Y Z subject, whatever it is, and look at all the different ways that I've self-assigned and gone out and covered this. You know, come back at it 15 times. I went back to these people. You know, got to really know them, and it, You, you kind of want to show somebody that, it, you, you know, the editor would say, oh my God, if you work that hard for yourself, you're gonna work really hard for me when I'm actually paying you. So, <laughs> so you know, find something that you're passionate about, whatever the t- whatever the subject is. Could be your own family. Lots of photographers photograph their own families, mm-hmm. uh, or it could be something that you think needs to be changed, or some injustice, or something beautiful. Um, hmm. I, you know, I, I'll give you uh, here. I'll give you an assignment that I was going to do myself before I stopped shooting and became like an organizer instead of a photographer or a producer. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, I was going to go to the the uh, Yale Drama School where um, so many wonderful actors came out of Meryl Streep and many other actors and actresses and I was going to say to the head of the department tell me who you think the three students you have this year you think have the potential to break out and I want to go to them when they're still you know just in school and say I want to spend the next 10 years as a shadow whenever you're when you're going on casting calls and you're working as a waitress you know, when you're you know, sleeping and when you're you've got a roommate, you know, like Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino were roommates when they were trying to get started. Mm-hmm. Right. And and my thought was not only would it be interesting to show you know, movie stars don't come out fully baked, they're they're struggling. They live in little apartments in Soho, they're mm-hmm. doing odd jobs and being handyman. I mean, what was it Harrison Ford was a, a handyman mm-hmm. before he got discovered? <clears throat> but I also thought but <clears throat> it's sort of like with the Heisenberg phenomena, by by documenting them I could actually help them with their career, right, because then I could go to National Geographic, whoever, and publish this, you know, three-year story showing people how actors and actresses struggled to get discovered and the, the big breaks and the, the movies they didn't take, the ones they did. Um, anyway, any of your listeners looking for an interesting, I mean, go find, there's so many people now, There's the, the whole television world has come, it's exploding with all the money, billions of dollars being poured into it. You know, find some young actors and actresses and, and help you know, they'll help you while you're helping them right it's like a mutual mm-hmm. thing you know I, anyway i think it'd be fascinating
0: that is cool that is cool do you think that it i mean so the past 10 15 years everyone's got a phone camera and those cameras are getting increasingly amazingly good um does that change photography for you in any way when now that everybody it can take pictures of everything does it change what you think is worth photographing
2: well, it's definitely commoditized, if that's the word, photography, because, I mean, a lot of people would just be happy to give away their pictures. So it's, it's really undercut the whole stock industry. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to get $500 for a black-and-white picture of a girl sitting under a tree looking bored, and they used it in the psychology textbook as <laughs> the opening chapter saying, you know, in adolescence, many young people experience, experience of depression. <laughs> $500, <laughs> thank you. Um Now you're lucky to get $2.50 for it because it's just, there's so many pictures out there and people steal them on the internet. You know, it's so easy to just grab something off a web page. So, on the one hand, I think people appreciate photography more, but I think they also take it for granted a lot more. I think think right now, if you're coming out of photojournalism school, you gotta do multimedia, you have to do sound, you have to do video. You gotta be a one-man or one-woman man because just taking great pictures in and of itself isn't gonna cut it anymore. It's just, it, I mean, unless you're Any leave its or something, you know. I mean, there's a right. few people who have remained, but most people have had their, you know, been cut off at the knees. Yeah, yeah. Do you uh, print? So, do you print so, your work? Um, I fill hard drives with my work. <laughs> <laughs> um, 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 I do. I do print work once in a while, but you know, um, to be honest, I just keep. Shooting and not actually doing anything with most of it. I mean, I, I you know I photograph my kids. I photograph friends. Uh, but when my friends get married, I give them a National Geographic wedding. I would say hire a real wedding photographer. I don't want the responsibility, but then I want to. I want to just. I want to be in the bathroom with the bride in the morning with <laughs> her mother, when and the bridesmaids when they're you know putting on their makeup and giggling and doing all that stuff. I just want to be. I mean, I, it's sort of, I don't shoot that much, so when I do shoot now, I just, I get high. I mean, I love shooting, and for me, it's that, that idea of flow, you know, athletes have it, musicians have it, photographers have it, it's just like, you just, eight hours later, you've got like, you know, a thousand pictures you shot, and until you see them, you can't remember, like, you're literally in a trance. I love that feeling. It's <laughs>
1: cool. Do you have any of your pictures, like, I mean, that you've taken over your career that are hanging on your wall?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I have I, I have some really my kids are probably the best documented children in human history. My son is <laughs> seventeen, and my daughter's nineteen, and um, I have some pretty amazing pictures because I mean the the first thing both of them saw when they came out of the womb was my camera. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> much to my wife's displeasure, yeah. uh, But um, uh, they they are so used to being photographed, and they've been you know everybody in our family is basically a photographer.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know they're 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 you know they're you know, they're they either work for the New York Times, or they're they're writers, or photographers, or designers, or whatever. You know. Um, that, anyway, they're, they're just you know they've they've lived and breathed photography for a long time.
0: So um, even even not your pictures, like what do you have prints on the walls and like that it inspire you that are up?
2: Um, I have a, a wonderful picture by Douglas Kirkland of Merrill Monroe wrapped in a sheet. Um, I have a wonderful picture uh, by Rodney Smith, my uh, uh, my brother-in-law who unfortunately passed away two years ago, but extraordinary images, almost like a photographic Magritte, very surreal. Wow. Um, I've got pictures by many friends. I mean, it's, you know, from some of the day in life photographers I did obviously get asked pictures from. Um, I tend to put other people's pictures up more than my own uh, yeah. just because, I don't know why, it just seems, I don't know, there's some just you know classics that I just absolutely love. Um, I just like to know I, – I, we jealous, often ask I, the people I'm what they – I'm jealous of your collection. Sorry? I'm jealous of your collection. I mean, oh. You showed me that the book, those books of the images that your family has. Oh, my God. I just – oh, so beautiful.
0: You know how it was in the 60s and 70s. If you couldn't afford art, you could still afford photographs. You yeah. Know?
2: yeah. I know. I know.
0: I remember thinking that um, – it was such an unusual art form that almost everybody, all the greats of the of the photographic world, were still alive. You know, like even the people I, yeah, who had practically the invented it in the, by the '60s and '70s, they were still you know doing whatever. Uh, like, how yeah. many art forms can you know? Are the greats still hanging out? I don't know. I also thought that was kind of fun.
2: Well, they're all starting to fade now, too, which is really um, sad. I mean, there—I mean, was it Robert Frank? I mean, there's so many people that are just passing now week by week. And it's just Mary Ellen, you know, two years ago. Yeah. Um, just so many greats that losing now. You know, it was fun. Uh, One of the
0: things that um, Mark Citret, a photographer who was on the other day, um, was saying is that, like, he didn't really know Robert Frank. So while he's sad that he had died, he lives on in the same way that he always lived on. Like, his picture is... Are robert frank and he didn't really know the man and so yeah i guess it's sad he's gone but he felt his relationship with frank's work and it was unchanged i guess just
1: in the sense that there won't be more yeah, no
2: and also he you know there's people like robert frank that inspired so many other photographers i mean his work was so it's funny i was just in new orleans uh two weeks ago with my son looking at colleges and uh you know you, those pictures that he shot in the, the cable cards uh, was it a something that uh, this uh, we it was a, a streetcar named desire there's actually a, a there's a street named desire in New Orleans I never knew that the that the play was named after that oh I, I still uh, Tennessee Williams oh. and anyway there's there's a famous picture I think it's on the front of the Americans of like uh, uh, there's like a black face and a kid's face and white. It, like it, on the bus or something? The panorama. yeah, it was actually it was actually uh, a tram. What do you call it? Uh, so mm-hmm. a, not cable car. There um, streetcar. 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 I have a book sitting here somewhere. Oh. Somewhere. I think it's there. the cover.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's super cool. Do you want? I what? do
1: have a question. Um, we like to ask every photographer this question, so take your time to think about it. But if there was one word you could use to describe your photography what word would you choose?
2: Probably empathy. Just because, you know, you, photography gives you this sort of, what it would be like to, to be in someone else's shoes, in someone else's body. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's the most powerful part of it, is letting you step into other people's lives. Yeah. Through and, through. and the amazing thing to me is, uh, you know, you think of that picture of Eddie Adams of the street shooting in Saigon, mm-hmm. and there was a CBS photographer sitting right next to him, actually filmed it. And there's a video of that scene. And yet, it's the still picture that we all remember. There's wow. something about the ability to encapsulate an entire experience. into. I mean, the picture, Nick Oot's picture of the girl in, also in Vietnam running with napalm. Right, I was and thinking that one. Pictures. That's a video yeah. too, right? I've seen it other is. images of that. I actually but, sent But the... I mean, throughout history, there's always been these. This. I, I think there's something in the human psyche where we can't. Remember, like like apparently you can only remember like seven or eight numbers, you know, and then your your brain kind of fades. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something about still photographs that lodge in our brains very differently than watching a stream of video.
1: Well, I think yeah, your, your mind fills in that the that, gaps. Yeah. I mean, it's like you're, you want to know the rest of the story, whereas a video, you're sort of, you can be more passive because you're being told the story and then you're like, okay, next. Whereas like, if you have that single moment, you don't necessarily know what preceded it or if they're okay or what, you know, what happened. I was, um, I sent, a it's it was true. on Instagram I sent uh, Ruben some something it was on Wired and it was saying that activism in the 1960s that some argue were actually defined by the photograph and the example they gave was um, John Paul Filo's um, image from the Kent State shootings
2: mm-hmm. and, oh yeah uh, sure yeah
1: when, and that sort of you know almost like encapsulated a uh, youth you know youth rising like protesting um, for the 60s whereas today they were saying now is that the tweet like what what do we have
2: Hmm. That's true. I remember the picture. There was somebody putting a flower into a soldier's bayonet. Yes. And, yeah. And uh, as you said, the, the picture from Kent state, but I always hear Crosby stills and Nash singing four dead in Ohio. <clears throat> when yeah. I see that picture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, just it. it, it I, I find that this is amazing. Uh, sort of synchronicity between music and photography more than photography and video. Mm. You know, for some reason, because it's limited because it's not
0: using all your senses,
2: yeah. Somehow, I think songs encapsulate something, whether it's an emotion or a story, the way that a photograph does. And that I don't know, I just associate the two. Maybe because I spend so much time, you know, in the dark room listening to music when I was printing, you know, <laughs> we all did, I guess, you know. Yeah. I yeah. it's funny, I was just in the dark room here yesterday, probably the first time in 20 years. Uh, I was visiting, I'm visiting my daughter here in Wisconsin at the University of Wisconsin, and. Just walking in the dark room and smelling the hypo, and you know the kids were printing, and we were in you know in the yellow light, and just you know, and, and my daughter was saying, "This is so hard, like compared to digital." Like, yeah. You guys yeah. Like you, you, you didn't know what was on the film until you developed it. They couldn't look at the back of the camera, and I, but she actually is kind of fascinated by having only thirty-six pictures. Yeah. And um, and just the sometimes I think limiting what you're doing actually bring, makes you more it's like you have you're more resourceful when you have fewer choices. Yeah. If that makes any sense. I you
1: know? totally agree. I yeah. often say that with like my designers where it's like if you constraints are not to be a pain in the ass It's actually It will make our idea better Because mm-hmm. if you just say yeah. Just go yeah. It's like What is the What is the context What are you going off of Right like, Those constraints Make your idea better Was was she surprised By the magic of it I mean if this was Her first time In the darkroom
2: She'd been in the room Before but she said It is absolutely magical Just watching the prince appear and Yeah just, You know uh, she, she really you know, And she's got a good eye too Do you know who Darcy Padilla is I don't, Darcy I don't. Is She won the Eugene Smith Award a couple years ago, Hmm. and she's the she's like the resident uh, professor of photography here. And so I got to spend some time with her yesterday, and just interesting, you know, I watched how she taught the class. Just, you know, it's it's sort of like teaching kids teletype or something. You know, it's so (laughs) (laughs) old-fashioned.
0: Teaching them to tell time. Uh Rick, I would love to sit and chat in you know, all afternoon. I think we should let you get back to what you're doing. So maybe we can wrap up. Rick, thanks a lot for joining us. And hopefully was you'll, an
2: honor. We'll, thank you for inviting
0: me. We'll yeah. do it again, hopefully, when you're around or next time you're in San Francisco. Come on by Neo Modern.
1: All right. Well, big thank you to Rick for being on the show. Uh loved the stories and can't wait to have you back. Our show is recorded and produced in San Francisco. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to get show notes, see photos, and post comments. Please leave reviews and ratings on iTunes, and don't forget to subscribe.
0: We get new listeners from you telling your friends and spreading the word. If you know someone who might get something from us, send them a link. Thanks to Mitchell Foreman for our theme music, the Blue Angels for the background noise, and all of you for hanging out with us. We appreciate your attention and hope we've given you some things to think about. Until next time.